Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Jason. This is Josh. Hello. Josh, um, I'd like to contextualise your film a little bit. Um, it's running in competition here for the Sydney Film Prize, which is all about audacious filmmaking. And here you are, an American who comes from a country that exports its culture all over the world very forcefully through its yeah. very good product often via Hollywood. And you're an American who's made now two films, Maria Full of Grace and The Forgiveness of Blood, with no Americans, well, no, no Americans in the main cast. I mean, these are films made with actors from other countries, about people from other countries, uh, not in English. It strikes me as a very audacious thing to do. Um, why? How? Uh, I guess the answer to the why is just because I come across a story that's fascinating to me. Uh, and so it happens very naturally that I've not only seen a subject matter, but some way into the subject matter that suggests a story that I can immediately <clears throat> imagine the crux of it on screen. And so I want to go and use the excuse of making a film to interview people and to put my, immerse myself in the culture. Maria Full of Grace actually starts with you meeting people in the, I think it was the Colombian community in New York who were telling you about drug I mules, met, for yeah, example. Yeah, I met someone um, who had been a drug mule, um, whose name I never got, in fact. It, and she, in a very concise way, uh, related that she had done this. And that, that was to realize that there were actually people who did this and to, to um, actually put my mind in to the experience of what it must be like to sit on an airplane with drugs in your stomach. That was what motivated me to do it. I think... And the, Al did you meet an Albanian who'd been involved in a blood feud I, driving, not, a, driving a taxi or something? Right. That's not where this one started. This one started by reading about it. Uh, and in a way, to, for me, the audacious thing wouldn't be to actually go and try and do it necessarily. I mean, it, it, that comes very naturally. That's not what I experience as being audacious. I think that the thing that, the moment where I experience it is when I actually am maybe another two steps down the way, having done some research and trying to write the script. I think where I experience it then is the pressure to get it right and to feel like I'm representing something truthfully and honestly and all, having to go the extra mile or more in order to make sure that it's not a cliche or I'm not in some way rehashing some stereotype. Tell me about the research that you did for The Forgiveness of Blood because you spent, you went to Albania obviously, you traveled um, all around this region where the film is set, speaking to people who had been involved in blood feuds. Yeah. And you were accompanied by a translator who eventually becomes your co-writer. Right. He was... We met in New York. Uh, it was one of those things where I had read about the topic and started... People would say, oh, what are you working on? And I would start to say, oh, I want to go to Albania. And shockingly, people would say, oh, I know someone Albanian. And it, it led to this guy who was in New York, he'd been there for 15 years, he had left Albania, and we traveled together and hired a driver. And so the three of us spent about a month um, 
driving around northern Albania, and every day we started off with uh, NGOs in the capital city just to sort of get the basic idea of the phenomenon, and then went north, and I had the names of a few mediators, um, people who were known in communities to go back and forth between these families and feuds. And so I interviewed them, and then I asked them to take me to families. Uh, it was always, the goal initially was just to get to the families that were living in isolation. And so it would either be through these mediators or it might be going to a school and working through the, the teacher who the school was sending one or two days a week to give homeschooling to the kids who were in isolation. But then there were other aspects of it that had nothing to do with the blood feuds. Uh, you know, at one point, just driving by an interesting town, and I said, oh, that town is about the right size. And we got out of the car, and I just was walking around, and within minutes, there was a, a man standing in his doorway, and we struck up conversation, and, and five minutes later, I was in his living room being served tea and brandy and being told his whole life story. Uh, Tell me about, you've always cast non-professional actors in most of the roles in your film. Uh, how did you go about casting this one? Because we had been in contact with the schools, the Ministry of Education for the research, when it came time to cast, we then went back to her and she would basically send us from school to school, which is something you could never ever do in the United States, probably not in Australia either. Mm. Um, where we literally, at seven in the morning, we would get in the car and send her a text message, and she would send us a text message back with the name of a school. And we would show up at the school, and the principal would welcome us, and they would put us into a classroom. And rather than saying to the kids, anyone who wants to audition can, they would say, oh, well, so today, this is what you're doing. <laughs> you're and, auditioning. <laughs> you're auditioning. Yeah and they would send them all in. And we would spend five minutes with each one and we would ask them to tell us something about themselves. And it, the challenge there became coming up with the, the right question. So, for example, tell us the last time you cried and why uh, was a really it's a really good question. If you're ever auditioning non-actors, I highly recommend it, especially if it's teenagers. So how did you know when you found, in <laughs> when particular... When they burst into tears. Really? Um, you know, when you... The goal in that situation is to get these kids to tell a story about themselves, to see how good their memory is, to see how well they're able to narrate something sure. and be very specific. And then to what extent they're able to engage emotionally. The really challenging part was once we identified a first group that we wanted to call back, bringing them in as a group was challenging to try and get them to improvise and to actually act. And that was a real learning process. So the first time we did it, it was a complete disaster because we brought in this group of a dozen kids and we brought them all in and explained what we were doing and then took them back out into the hallway and brought them in in pairs. And we would describe, I had put a lot of thought into some situation to use for an improvisation, gave them the improvisation, and they just looked at us like deer in headlights. 
and they were completely petrified. And so then we tried bringing them in as a group and having a conversation with them about issues in their lives mm. and tried to sort of guide them to the situation, even if I already knew because I had done it at five other schools where I was, where I was getting them to, they needed to be brought to that point. So then it would be a, an improvisation like your brother and sister. Um, I mean, the conversation would always start, I would always start with the question, what is the most difficult thing about being an Albanian teenager? Inevitably, they would talk about the difference in mentality of their parents' generation. But it also meant for their brothers. For, like, the girls would always complain about their, having to get permission to go to a party or to go shopping, to get permission just, not just from their fathers, but maybe from their brothers. And so it was about coming up with a situation like your brother and sister um, and you found, and your father is away in Italy working because they would and you want to go to a party and you've told your mother about this that, and you've gotten permission and then saying to the brother, you just walked by her bedroom door and you saw her putting on makeup and you've decided that absolutely you're not going to let her go to the party. And that turned out to be a very volatile situation for them to improvise. All this sort of kind of gender politics and, and the generational conflict does seep into your film, obviously. Um, one thing that's quite specific that's referenced in your film that is, however, quite a, a vague and, and, and difficult to um, understand concept, I think, um, which I'm sure a lot of people are interested in, is the canoon. Now, tell me about the canoon, this book of, this law book amongst the tribes or amongst the clans of northern Albania. Is it something that is, uh, is it an oral tradition? What is it? Originally, it was an oral tradition. Uh, goes back, I've been told, 500 years, roughly. And it is now published in a book. It's, it was written down at the beginning of the 20th century. And it's now published, and it's published in a very nice edition, Albanian on one side, English translation on the other. Uh, and, it's, and it's designed for mediating all sorts of things, right? Right. Not just it's, deaths and murders. And yeah, it's, there's a chapter on business, there's a chapter on marriage, there's a chapter on uh, law, the chapter on hospitality, and they're all incredibly, incredibly detailed rules. So even just within the question of murder, whether, you, whether a man is murdered is different from whether a woman is murdered. If the woman is pregnant, it's different. If you murder someone, but it's believed that you were trying to defend your ability to put food on the table for your family, that's a different situation. When you go to an Albanian home, if you're carrying your gun, you're supposed to surrender it to the host, and the host should hang it on a nail. So there's a subset, sub chapter that says, you know, if on going to an Albanian home and you surrender your weapon and that weapon is put on a nail and it slips off the nail and hits the floor, discharges and kills someone in that situation, then it's it determines what, right, right. What, is, what is owed. Um, and interestingly, if you are in someone's home as a guest and someone attacks you, the host is responsible for you because you were the guest and they take on the, re the responsibility to avenge your death. And they then are in a feud with the person who injured you. 
It's all very, very specific and very, very complicated. This must be, there must have been one of the most difficult aspects of research. You had people to help you though, obviously, and you met with different mediators and the guy who appears in your film, the kind of dapper, you know, um, the guy with the, with the <coughs> character, he seems a little bit like a snake oil salesman, yeah. I must admit. He doesn't seem very yeah. uh, the honest type. He was, in actual fact, a real-life mediator. Yeah, he is. And he was one of the first people that we met who was very, very helpful. And he's not at all like that character. In the community, we kept being referred to... One of the first people that we met was, in fact, the basis for that character. And he was he, a shonky... He, well, he, he arrived... You know, we'd only been in town for a couple of days, and, you know, we had heard about him, and we arrived, and we were supposed to meet him in a cafe, and he was late. And he came in, and he immediately launched into a whole routine, and it was difficult to get a word in edgewise. And the next thing I knew, he was getting up and leaving, and I said to my translator, what just happened? And, you know, part of it was that he was, like, talking about how many feuds he had mediated and how experienced he was, and the interpretation afterwards was all of, this was all a song and dance in order to set up how much we should pay him or tip him. I don't even, it wasn't even clear how you would do it <laughs> for him to take the time to help us. Um, and so he became the basis for the character. And then when it came time to cast the character, I did in fact show that scene to him. And interestingly, he wasn't, didn't have a problem with it. He didn't really, he said, oh, that's me. And he didn't, it wasn't like, oh, this is a terrible representation because it looks like I'm money grubbing. It was, of, of course one would mention all of the costs and of course, a mediator should be in some way remunerated. It goes without saying, because the truth of the matter is most of these guys don't make money. And so, I mean, this is not a job. It's not some official job. But he wasn't he, right for the he part. He was not right. He was quite long-winded and had a little trouble distinguishing fact from fiction. Um, and so we turned to this other guy who was one of the first people we had met and he also immediately said, oh, this is based on that other guy. <laughs> and he was known in the community, and, and he recognized that it was not a very favorable representation, and yet he was still willing to go on camera and play the part, which I have a lot of respect for, because precisely because so many of them, you know, they're of a different age, they don't go to the movies, they don't understand what the difference is between a documentary and a fiction. And... Here he was going to be seen, he knows he's going to be seen by the other members of his community as someone who is in a negative light, and still he was willing to put himself out there, and I have a lot of respect for that. I'd like to ask a question about your uh, background and your kind of professional formation, because I think it would be interesting for people to know. You uh, have a background as, uh, you're a long-time sort of uh, passionate photographer. Um, you went to uni and did studied social science. Right. So you come to film via a quite a circuitous route. You, you, you come to film... The long way. Yeah, the long way. Yeah. Um, but I think that the films you make, Maria Full of Grace and The Forgiveness of Blood, sort of show, I think, highlight both these passions, your passion yeah. for the image, but also your passion for 
um, a journalistic story almost, or, yeah. or a mystery that can be can be uh, investigated by uh, on the ground via yeah. the collection of facts and so forth. I I'm, I don't really like to therapize myself yeah. on film. It's more about going out and talking to people. What about? It's always important though with those two sort of passions to kind of remember to bring into the equation um, an element of poetry though, isn't it, within cinema? Because cinema isn't, I mean, otherwise you'd be making documentaries, presumably. So, and why aren't you making documentaries then in that I mean, I would love to make documentaries and and I'm sure I will. Um, I guess, I mean, I love working with actors and non-actors. I like setting up the shot and, and, and making the fiction film. I mean, that's all very much an enjoyable process to me, and I like structuring the narrative. I also enjoy editing documentary footage and finding the story within it. It's yes. also something that's enjoyable, but I don't yeah. know. I like the fiction film. What relationship or what friendships did you forge in Albania with members of the Albanian film community because uh, uh, although your film is very interesting in that it is an American going to Albania and making this yeah. and, it, and, it's, and it's a film that I think is in a long, in a long tradition of films made, by, made about countries by people who aren't from that country and yeah. I think of all the Europeans who went to America and made films about America. You think of Once Upon a Time in America for example. Yeah. Uh, now you've kind of gone to Europe and made a film about Europe. Did, what, did, what, did, what did the Albanians say about the film? Well, I'm certainly not the first to arrive in Albania. I mean, there was this film L'America that was the made. Italian in, film. The Italian film yes. that was made in it. And, and they have very mixed feelings about that film. That was um, all about an Italian company kind of exploiting cheap labor in America. And right. then one of the managers of the company ends up finding his way on a boat full of illegal migrants, Albanian and it migrants, was that image to of, Italy of a boat full of Albanians that yep. I think, while truthful, was also, I think, a little bit uncomfortable for a lot of Albanians. Was your film uncomfortable as well? Well, I haven't screened it there yet, uh, but I don't, I hope it won't be. I mean, I hope it'll be just uncomfortable enough that it will provoke conversation. Um, and I don't necessarily think that being uncomfortable is a bad thing, as long as it's truthful. But what would your colleagues in Albania saying about your project? What were they telling you? Were they saying that you were kind of entering into difficult territory or, or, and did you feel you had some sort of advantage being a foreigner tackling this subject matter? I definitely, people who knew, understood what I was doing, especially Albanians. There was a big moment when we were in the midst of casting when the, we had a half a dozen or so assistants, production assistants, film students who were working all hours and sleeping on the floor, um, going from school to school, doing the casting. And they had, I had described the film for them. The script at that point existed in English. And we, at the minute we got the Albanian translation, uh, they all read it. And they were all sitting in one room and they were literally, they would read a page and pass it to the next person. And they were all sitting, you know, basically, this marathon reading session, and they were all, mind you, they were working for us, so, but I think they were fairly critical, and I think what they, was important to them was that it was a story about the kids, and that there was a, a way into 
this situation that they hadn't seen before. Usually, the there are blood feud movies in Albania, but they tend to be um, very st stereotypical, mm -hmm. even within Albania. So at one point, one of the shorthands we started to use to try and convey to people that this would be something different, and this was my co-writer and then casting director who suddenly hit upon this. He said, there will be no beanies and there will be no mustaches. Um, because Albanians are extremely proud of this, their very typical hat, and they have long handlebar mustaches. And pretty much every Albanian film about a blood feud has these guys in traditional garb, and they sit, and they have very stilted conversations, and this was going to be something that was much freer and more realist, and I think they appreciated it. Did you get a sense, though, that in your research, you were probably you had the benefit of being an outsider in that you were probably a little bit more bold than an Albanian from, say, the capital would be in going out to this sort of region and, yeah. and interviewing the people and sort of sticking their nose in. Did you feel that you had that advantage that you... One of the ways that I felt, I felt that it could be bold, ironically, was that sort of counterintuitive, I felt I didn't have to explain the canoon. Um, you would think it would be the Albanian filmmaker for an Albanian audience that wouldn't have to explain it. And yet, frequently, they, the films that I was seeing were caught up in tr almost being pedagogical. And I made a decision early on that I was going to reference it and I was going to be very, very judicious in giving just the right nugget of information that would help my narrative. And precisely because I knew that I could never fully elucidate this document, that it would be more interesting if it were left opaque. And so I think that was one of the ways in which I was able to do something that Albanian filmmakers don't tend to do. Mm, mm. The other way was that Albanian filmmakers tend to be all about the he said, she said, making films that are really about trying to see the trying to tell the story of the feud and doing both sides of the story and whether and the big question being whether or not someone will pick up a gun and whether or not someone is right or wrong and seeking justice or be, and all of that was not interesting to me I really I wanted to understand the experience the lived experience on a day-to-day -day basis of what it would be like to have a target on your head mm. and not be able to leave the house um, Mm. And so I, I tried not to get mired in the specific detail of the narrative of the crimes that led to this. Also because my experience when I was in these families' houses was that they would in immediately launch into that story and within two minutes or three minutes, I would be lost. Mm. They would start, they would say, well, and then my cousin did that to him, and I would be like, wait a minute, I thought your cousin was the other family, and then it turns out that no, they're in a feud actually with their own family, or they're in a feud with two families of the same. And I just, all of that I realized wasn't the story I was interested in. Mm. I'm wondering now if we could um, maybe open up this conversation to questions from the audience, if there are questions from the audience, I'm sure there are. Um, we do have a roving mic. Um, in fact, we've got two roving mics. So if you want to put up your hand and we will... I can see one already, just the uh, young lady there. 
Hi, well done on a great film. Um, I've got two questions. One is, how do you get funded to get to make a film like this that's so not your typical commercial film? And the second one is, directing non-actors non -actors is an art form, but directing non-actors that don't speak English. How did you go with that? Uh, funding was remarkably easy. I wouldn't have expected it, but basically I Wrote up, we wrote up a proposal, very like five pages, just before I even went to Albania, and we got a little bit of seed money from a Arts Council grant, which are virtually non-existent in the United States. And so I went to Albania and did the research and wrote the first draft, and then went to Cannes and had all of these meetings, none of which actually led to the financing, but found myself uh, at dinner with a bunch of Americans, and I was sitting there looking at my watch thinking, why am, I meet, why am I having socializing with Americans when I should be meeting people I can't otherwise meet? And sure enough, one of these Americans happened to be working in London for a company, a European company that's half Italian and half British, and she heard what I wanted to do, and she said, oh, well, you should meet my boss. And about 48 hours later, we were financed. So it was, it was really, I, I think partly also it's because it, it's a small film, budget-wise, and it's a European film, so it meant that we could go and look for money in Europe. It made sense too. And it was a great relief after having films almost get made and then fall apart in the United States, not to have anyone saying, okay, but what famous actor can we put in this role and have them pretend to speak Albanian, which I've had happen. Uh, and directing non-actors, uh, not in English. Truthfully, I have to say that a lot of it was done in English and Italian because the two main kids spoke English and Italian. And the rest of the family, the adults spoke English. The two littlest children didn't speak English. I studied Albanian and so I could make myself understood in Albanian. Um, so it was sort of between those three languages. And half of it, I would say, the, the most enjoyable and the easiest half of it was workshopping the family because we had probably a total of eight or 10 days over the course of two or three weeks where we would meet as a family and do all sorts of improvisations and exercises just to create their family history. And even before that, I started working just with the the brother and sister for weeks before that because they had never acted before. And it was all about creating a backstory and a set of relationships, figuring out what they thought about, who helped who with their homework, all of that stuff. And so by the time that we were filming and doing scenes that were within the family, those were very easy. The scenes that were much more challenging were the scenes that involved some secondary character who was not an actor, and with whom I maybe didn't have nearly the time to rehearse. And because they were not an actor, and they were just a person from the community, like a shop owner, they didn't speak any English. And then I had to work through a translator on set while everyone waited. Uh, that was challenging. Um, there was a shop owner who had been a shop owner for 40 years of his life. And we had practiced the scene a couple times, 
well before that. And then when we went to go film it, he got so petrified that he forgot how to sell a pack of cigarettes. And I had to remind him that, you know, you hand the person the cigarettes, you take the money, you get the change, you hand them the change, you get the bag, you open the bag, you put the product in the bag. I mean, it was literally, it was like that. And it was, so it can be very microscopic at times. Yeah. I think we've got another question just over here. Uh, thank you very much for the film. It was very, very powerful. Um, and particularly the, the ending of the film, I was deep, deeply moved by it. Um, I had a question about it. Um, uh, part of the reason I was moved was the way it um, sort of had an unexpected ending. I, I, I saw Nick disappearing over the fields and I was holding it together emotionally. And I, I felt I could make it to the credits, I'd be okay. Uh, but then you, you cut to the, the sister and that, that's when I lost it. <laughs> and I thought it was a really interesting and unusual choice to cut back to perhaps a secondary character at that point. Um, and I, I was curious, when was that scripted? Um, when, when, did that, when did you arrive at that decision? I'd like to say that I knew well in advance, but uh, we discovered that in the editing room. And the only reason why that footage even existed was because there was discussion about the ending that I had scripted. I'll tell you what was scripted. Uh, it was that Nick walked off through the field and turned back and saw his little brother in the window. And the idea being that this is the next generation and there used to be a line of dialogue uh, in a scene that got cut in which he would speculate, well, how long will it be before they just stop targeting me and start targeting my little brother? with the intention that when you ended and you look back to him, that it was just like, oh my God, when will this ever end? And the hesitation was that I always knew that it was a little bit dodgy just because he's not a significant character. And I wasn't sure if you would have an emotional connection to him. And so we filmed that shot of Rudina on the roof, looking back at Nick. And uh, when I filmed that, the little brother was also in the window, and we've digitally removed him. <laughs> um, and then I also filmed her walking across the roof and gazing out at her, thinking about her future. But I really wasn't sure if it was going to get used. And it wasn't until we were in the edit room that we decided that actually this, for a lot of reasons, it felt like the right thing to do. Got any more questions? Just raise your hand up high. Yep. The unfortunate people who didn't see this film at the film festival, are they going to get an opportunity in the commercial theatres in Sydney, cinemas? Uh, yes, there's a gentleman just behind you who's in charge of distributing it. <laughs> um, we haven't figured out a release date yet, but um, sometime maybe the beginning of 2012, I think. Thank you. I really enjoyed the movie. Uh, just wanted to know what drew you to the two... Uh, main teenagers and uh, did you find that they were natural natural um, actors when you first auditioned them or did Those, that yeah they were absolutely yeah so when Nick came in it was the end of a long day of casting and um, the casting director wasn't even going to audition him and he insisted on being auditioned and Whereas everyone else normally would speak for one or two minutes and then try and 
get out. He was happy to stay and talk and tell stories on camera. And he, first of all, he was on his third high school. You know, he'd been kicked out of two before, and he was not really a great student, but clearly very, very smart. And so, you know, told a story about him and his friend managing to get prescription drugs and test them out, and him being at home and watching TV with his family and starting to get paranoid and, mm -hmm. and having some dream that involved white rabbits. And I mean, he was clearly very creative, very talkative, really good memory, and just captivating on screen. However, he was very different physically from what I imagined. The whole thing with lifting weights was based on an, a character, a guy who I had met who was in isolation, who, like a prisoner in a jail cell, is really quite built because he has, is working out all the time. And so my conception of the character was that it should be someone who's really physical. And it, I, was on, I was on the fence for that reason. And then, I, and then I suddenly realized that, okay, this is actually a source of comedy to have a kid this thin interested in working out. And with the girl, I did send a text message the moment I met her back to my producer in New York saying, I think we found her. She was, her, with her, the question mark was that she was so strong and seemed so uh, well put together. She's 14 years old, uh, which you wouldn't believe. And I had a big hesitation about whether or not she could, I knew clearly that she could play the character at the end of the film. What we really had to work on was her playing the character at the beginning of the film and finding the vulnerability. And one of the things that she did, I put the fear of God in her. I sort of intimated that, you know, she didn't have the part yet and that she needed to find someone on whom to base the character and that she needed to go out to a village. Normally it's something that I would set up and I would help an actress with, but I really wanted her to do it on her own. And her parents freaked out as well, and they said that they didn't, because they're of a very specific social class, and they didn't really have connections to families in little villages, and sure enough, they figured out someone. And she went and spent a long day, and the family had a girl her age, and she came back like, she couldn't stop talking. Like, she was so excited. And, and for her, it was a whole side of Albania that she didn't know. And it was, you know, 30 minutes away from her town in a village that she had never visited before. And the thing that most affected her was that this girl, who was her same age, or maybe a couple years older than her, uh, had maybe one or two more years of high school and said quite bluntly that when she finished, it was, a, first of all, a big achievement that this girl even got to go to high school. She had to fight within her family to be allowed to continue after elementary school. And that when she finished high school, that was it. She would be back in the house until she was married off. And that just completely rocked the world of, of the girl who played Rudina. And so it completely changed her whole physicality and the way she approached the character. So, in, because my, up until then, in improvisations with the, her brother, she was bossing him around and she was cutting him off. And I really, I had to convey to her, no, you need to hold back a little bit. And so that was really what she had to work on. Thanks so much. It was an amazing movie. I, I'm Albanian, so I ah. did not put him in there. Um, I loved it. It's um, such a huge open wound for that part of Albania. Um, 
Um, my question was, um, we hear in the movie a lot talking about Besa, and I wanted to hear, it's, for me it's very hard, being an Albanian, I understand that, but it's very hard to sort of explain that to others, um, the concept of Besa, which is basically even older than the canon. So um, I'd like to hear your perception about that. And um, Yeah. Yeah. There was a question about the concept of Besa, if you didn't hear. It's just a word that we just, we decided to leave it in the subtitles as is and put it in italics um, in the same way that we put in Kanun and put a capital K just to indicate to the audience this is a special idea and notion. It's a, my understanding of the, I mean your question is what my understanding, my understanding of the word is that it has multiple meanings. Uh, in its most literal sense it can mean promise. You know, it's the idea of giving your word to someone. Uh, and it is, in many senses, the most fundamental aspect of Albanian culture because what it represents is the notion of respect and a notion of obligation, and then within that, a notion of hospitality. Um, and it means also that when you're doing business with someone, that you have a certain obligation in terms of exchange and being equal. And I knew that in the film, if I just, in the, in the context of the film, what they're talking about is, would be translated in English as a truce. That what we want is a truce or a ceasefire. And I knew that if I translated it that specifically, that it would somehow be reducing it too much. And so I decided just to leave the word there. And even if people don't really they couldn't tell you what a besa is. They sort of have a kind of general feeling for it, which I thought was better. Thank you very much. It was a wonderful movie. Um, working with non-actors, can you tell me how you represent their legal rights? Mm. And how, yeah, who takes care of them other than you? Well, uh, from a legal point of view, we treat them they're, they're the same as actors. There's no differentiation. Um, they sign a contract and which gives us the right to use their performance. They're all people that we meet beforehand and I audition. And so whether they went to school for acting or something else or not, to, not it's at all, from a legal point of view, it's, it's no different. Um, and they're not playing themselves. They're playing fictional characters. So. Does that answer your question? But they don't know how much they're worth because of their inexperience. Oh, you mean in terms of how much we paid them? We didn't really pay anyone very much money at all, so it wasn't really relevant. Um, I think everyone was excited to be a part of the film. Uh, the only one, I mean, the, and it's true generally in films. Well, that's not true. Films of this size, where there's no one who's what we refer to in the business as above the line. Um, none of them are movie stars who are getting pay, paid based on their experience. They're getting pay, paid based on the size of the role for the film. So pretty much anyone who wasn't a member of their core family was getting paid a basic rate for the number of days they were working. So it's not, sadly, it's not in some way trying to put a value on the, 
the work that they're doing in the sense of some creative way. I mean, otherwise it would be impossible to, to try and value. Another question somewhere? There's a man there with the glasses. Yep. Thank you. What, do you. what are your feelings for future generations of Albanians? Do you think this is a, a practice or an idea that will die out because it carries with it the idea of maybe a negative connotation, violent retribution, that sort of idea? Or do you think it's so ingrained that they'll live with it and continue? I can tell you that I had a, a moment of crisis when I was preparing the film because I, and this gets back to your question of, you know, whether it's courageous or just foolish to, to try and do this, I, I'm constantly asking myself the question of like, not only am I getting it right, but should I even be doing it at all? Precisely because I know that there will be Albanians who will be concerned that this is now further cementing their representation as being the land of the blood feud. Not that I'm the first, but... Um, and so I had a crisis of thinking, there, maybe there aren't as many families living in isolation now as I had thought. So instead of there being like hundreds, maybe there are only dozens right now in northern Albania. I think it's, it's very difficult to get a handle on how many. There was a moment when I thought it really wasn't actually that big a number, and then I visited a family and said, well, we said, so it's, it's good at least the number's going down, and the woman said, what are you talking about? There's three families across the valley that are also living in isolation, you know? And so it, there were a couple moments when I, you know, I, I definitely had the moment of thinking, am I just furthering the problem by claiming that this is widespread, when in fact it's on the decline? And I had that conversation out loud with my co-writer, and he said to me, listen, for 45 years under communism, we were told that blood feuds were no more because the communist dictator made it absolutely illegal. Um, and there was only one recorded blood feud killing in 45 years. And in theory, we Albanians had, he said, have superseded the blood feud and we've moved beyond it. It was very much a communist doctrine. And sure enough, in the early 90s, as soon as communism fell, there was this resurgence partly because the state was weak and people couldn't rely on the police and the judicial system to reliably capture and keep someone in jail. And so they would return to the canoe. And that continued from the early 90s to the late 90s. In 97, there was a, a pyramid scheme that pretty much just about everyone in Albania had at some point invested money in and it collapsed and it led to effectively like a civil war or breakdown and there's something like 3,000 people killed in the course of a year. I mean, it was dangerous just to go out on the roads. Um, I didn't get to experience it, but I was told by a lot of people that like you didn't dare go across the street without a gun. And the Albanian culture can be very aggressive and um, belligerent and there's a lot of pride and ego and that's what causes these feuds. And so ultimately, my co-writer said to me, you know, it may have crested in the late 90s and maybe now it's tapering again, but to say that suddenly we've done away with this mentality would be as foolish as to say under communism that suddenly you've done away with it. It's just not going away. And ultimately, I, sadly, I, I agree with that. And when you talk to someone in Albanian and you listen to the language, you realize that phrases in Albanian like the, the word blood has 
I mean, I, I don't, we have one Albanian in the audience who might be able to second this, I don't know, but the word blood has a lot of meaning in Albanian language. The notion of being in blood with someone means to be in a feud with someone. And there are various words that all have blood as a, a root in the word. And so that whole concept is very, very deeply ingrained. I might just ask a question at this point. I'm wondering how, what you see for the film in terms of how it might go in your own country. I mean, because, you know, America's a huge market, but it is notoriously difficult to crack yeah. when you present a film with subtitles, um, or even when you're making an American film that's kind of critiquing American foreign policy, like a film like Syriana, all those films that came out that were very well-meaning and wanting to critique the war on terror didn't do very well. Um, what sort of hopes do you have for your film? Uh, I mean, I suppose this is the other side of the coin of the courageous slash foolish thing of not just going into Albania, but then going back to the United States and saying, and now here's my next film, and it's in the Albanian language. Would you please distribute it? Uh, we have a distributor, so the film will be released. Um, How many screens I, do you reckon it would get? Ballpark? The minimum. What would that be in the United States? I, mean, I think it'll be two in New York, two in LA, and it'll play at minimum a half a dozen key cities, and then it may travel. If it, uh, that's what I'm assuming will be the case, I'm trying to keep my expectations low. You know, if it gets written about and it catches on, you know, hopefully it will do more than that. But I'm trying to recognize that I got lucky with Maria Full of Grace in many respects. And that cut through, didn't it, really, in terms of audience? Yeah, fairly, yeah. Uh, a lot of people saw it. But the difference there is that Spanish is a much more common language in the United States. The Latino culture is much more present. It was a movie about drugs, sure. and half of it takes place in New York. Sure. Thank you for this film. It was absolutely superb, and there's no doubt it's my pick for the festival Thank at you. this stage. What will happen to those two leads that you um, so magnificently got into the film and who did such a fantastic job? I'm amazed that girl was only 14. She was. She looked about 25. What will happen to them, do you think? Will it change the way that they, uh, their lives go in any way? I mean, uh, what sort of future would there be for them in Albania with a uh, film industry or stage or that sort of thing as a result of what yeah. they've done? Well, regardless of what happens professionally, I know that it's been an important experience for them growing up. I mean, the best experience I've had so far with the film, the finished film, was at the premiere in Berlin on the red carpet with them having never been to a film festival before, being ushered into this theater with nearly 2,000 seats and seeing their own faces on this huge screen with all of these people. Um, you know, that was enormously moving for them. And so I think the experience just at that level of feeling like they took on something that was probably pretty scary at some levels and really mastered it. Whatever happens to them professionally, I think that it's been a good learning experience for them. The boy who plays Nick decided that he wants to become an actor. He just barely graduated high school. Uh, 
and then he applied to acting school in the capital. And unfortunately, the selection committee for the school was made up of actors whom we had auditioned and not taken for the film. And uh, again, this is an, an, a sad aspect of a certain mentality that is part of the blood feuds. They took revenge and they denied him entry into the university, which is crazy because I can't imagine that there was anyone else applying for school who had been a lead in an international film. The actor who plays his father is actually from Macedonia and he's on the acting faculty in, at the university in Tetovo. And so he managed to secure a slot for him, managed to get him uh, a job waiting tables and an apartment to live in. And he's become his mentor. And so the father-son relationship, a better relationship than is in the movie, has continued. And so he's going to become an actor. And she, I don't know, she's still, still too early to say whether she would study acting, but they are already doing press in Albania. And to see the two of them sit next to each other on a national TV show and hold their own for half an hour with you know, a major presenter. And, you know, he, the guy playing Nick, is slouched back like this, like Brad Pitt, you know, with a little wisp of a beard, and she's sitting forward like this, you know, with her hair combed back, and she's just radiant. I mean, the two of them are really phenomenal, so whatever they do, I think they're going to be successful. Okay, on that note, that concludes this uh, Q&A session uh, with Josh Marston. Um, on behalf of the Sydney Film Festival, I'd like to thank you, Josh, thank for you. Uh, coming here and talking to us, and uh, I hope you'll all join me in thanking Josh, too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.